Well, please have your Bible open in Ezekiel 24, if you want to just follow uh, some of the verses there that I'll be referring to. Uh, now, if you've got your eyes fixed on the screen behind me, uh, wondering when all the points are going to be coming up and wondering whether Warren's broken it, I have three concluding points, which are just the main points that I want to leave you with. So they're going to come up right at the end, okay? At the beginning of chapter 24, God makes it clear that a date is set. He mentions the very specific day. He tells Ezekiel, you write this day and date down in your diary. Underline it. Make a note of it. God wants God's prophet to note the date that judgment that has been foretold all through this, this book, it's happened. Today is the day. God is fulfilling his word right now. Nebuchadnezzar has begun his siege of Jerusalem. Now, God's anger over sin is real. And his warnings regarding the condemnation and judgment that we put ourselves under are not vague, empty threats. Now, we've jumped from chapter 18 to 24. In the intervening chapters, in many ways, we could say it's been more of the same. Different pictures, different images brought to our attention, but God making clear the sins of the people of Israel, the sins of the people in Jerusalem, and making clear his judgment that's going to come against them. He makes very clear the extent of his displeasure at Israel because of his sin, because of their sin, and of the severity of his coming judgment. In chapter 23, you will find there some of the most graphic, shocking language that you will find anywhere in the Bible. I am literally going to spare your blushes with some of the things that are mentioned there. There are things mentioned in chapter 23 which many of you would feel very uncomfortable about if I started to explain them. Indeed, some of you would find it shocking in its detail and in its extent. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah are likened to two sisters who give themselves wholesale to the most depraved and wicked passions and sexual immorality that it's possible to imagine. And they become brazen prostitutes. That's what sin is like to God it's as bad as that it's as horrific as that it's as awful as that I remember once talking with a colleague at work when he used to work in the bank and he was having all kinds of problems at home we were talking one lunchtime I'd never once heard that man swear never and I remember him saying I feel like swearing the way I feel, but there isn't a word strong enough.
Chapter 23 is a bit like that. What's the strongest, most shocking image that can be put, that can be put before the people to, to explain what your sin looks like to God? Complete immorality, complete filth, obscenity, wickedness, immorality of the very worst kind. I have a concern that when we read these kinds of passages in the Old Testament, there's a big danger that we think to ourselves, this language is so extreme, it's actually just an exaggeration. But it isn't. It isn't. It's not an exaggeration to try and shock us. There really aren't words strong enough to describe what sin is like to God. There really aren't. And we perhaps come across these Old Testament passages and we find ourselves thinking, sin isn't really this bad. And perhaps we hear of other people who are not believers and they point to the Old Testament and all of these kinds of things that we read here and of their absolute reluctance to accept any of this kind of stuff. And maybe we are tempted not to take it that seriously either. This is just the Old Testament prophets going off on one again. It really isn't as bad as all that. The opposite is true. We can't even begin to find the words to describe how horrendous sin is before a holy God. There isn't language strong enough to portray God's anger and disgust over sin. Especially when it's in people like the nation of Israel who've known so many blessings from him and have had so much truth exposed to them. The danger is that even as Christian believers, we're often guilty of not taking the issue of sin as seriously as we should. And maybe because of that, there's a danger that we're not as anxious as we should be over ongoing sin in our own lives, even as Christians. And maybe because of that, nor are we as concerned as we should be in gospel work to get out this message of salvation to as many people as we possibly can because we know and we understand that God's judgment and condemnation of sin really is as bad as this. The Church of Christ has been preaching for several thousand years now the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you there is a date when Christ will return. Just like God reveals to Ezekiel in chapter 24, this is the date. This is the day. Now, in terms of the return of Christ, I don't know that date. You don't know that date. There's no preacher alive who knows the date. 
but there is a date and the Lord Jesus Christ will return in judgment and as surely as we see in the Old Testament in passages like this that promised judgment which has been so long in the coming that we might think God doesn't really mean this the day has arrived and the day will arrive because it's been set known only to the Father as I mentioned this morning but set and the wrath to come is an awful thing if men and women reject the Lord Jesus Christ if they shun his gospel if they mock and sneer at the message of the blood that has been shed for them at Calvary condemnation and judgment is the only thing that can happen to sinners at the return of Christ and for us as his people that ought to be a really dominant thing in our minds and it should drive us on drive us on to share this saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ because a date is set and it's coming Ezekiel was the watchman of his day we are the watchmen today and women we're the ones who are to proclaim time is short we're to communicate God's message of the gospel we're to get it out there we're to tell others and warn them it's coming in the opening verses up to verse 14 in Ezekiel 24 we have this parable of a boiling pot and it does mark this turning point in the things that Ezekiel's been saying because up to now it's been this warning of judgment but now he's actually telling them the judgment has begun the fulfillment of all of those prophecies is coming the siege of Jerusalem has begun today and the siege of Jerusalem was mentioned back in chapter 4 in Ezekiel you might recall but it started do you remember that passage about false prophets in chapter 13 they mocked him they contradicted Ezekiel peace they said it's all going to be peace but there was no peace and Ezekiel has the date written down when the judgment has begun so in verse 2 we see the king of Babylon is setting himself against Jerusalem and it's a really vivid illustration I don't know whether you've ever stood over a saucepan and perhaps gone away to do something else on a cook uh, uh, while the pan is left on the cooker uh, we seem to be particularly adept at this in our house as all of a sudden there's a rattle of a pan lid from the kitchen there's the sound of boiling liquid hitting a red hot uh, stove and uh, someone runs running into the kitchen to remove the pan and turn the heat down we seem to be very good at that in our house well here's a pot that's left and left and left and its contents have been allowed to boil dry so you're at that point where your smoke alarm's now going off and you've got a ruined meal and a ruined pan that's the picture here in these opening verses the pot is Jerusalem and the choice cuts of meat that have been placed in the pot are all the people in the city 
and Ezekiel is told to boil the pot. This is the heat of God's judgment which is coming against them now on this very day. And the fuel is there for the fire. And the fire of the judgment grows hotter and hotter and hotter. And the Bible describes it that they were all boiled down and all that's left is filthy scum. Hmm. Just all their filth. And absolutely everything in the pot is destroyed. And it's emptied out. It's put back on the heater again. And the whole thing is burnt to a cinder. What's this parable saying? Well, if you're cooking meat anytime, you hope to have a lovely smell. Those of you that were uh, cooking food for lunch, perhaps you'd left something on the timer in the oven at home. And as you went in your front door after church this morning, you hope to be met with the lovely aroma of whatever it is, your roast beef, your roast potatoes, whatever it is, wafting through from the kitchen because everything's worked okay. But the opposite is true here. All there is in this pot is scum and filth and dirt. Because that's what the people were like in their sin. And they just have to be burnt. This holy city has become a city of bloodshed. The bloodshed that comes with guilt and judgment. They've been set on a rock for all to see. It's not going to be a secret thing the destruction of Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem. Everyone will know about it. All the surrounding nations will know about it. It's not a secret thing. The problem is the people in Jerusalem haven't been ashamed of their sin. But now it's all open. God will judge her openly before all the world. And we just have this grime and this filth being purged in the flames. And that's a picture of God just purging sinners of their sin. Now, we've seen how God, even in the midst of his offers, his message of judgment, there's always offers of grace, there's always offers of pardon, there's always offers of forgiveness. There is a way in which these people could have come to the Lord and he could have forgiven and pardoned their sins. They could have been cleansed of their sin if only they had repented and returned and come back to him. But they haven't done that. And so God is now cleansing them this way in the fire of condemnation. And he's destroying Jerusalem. He's destroying the temple and all the people who are in it. If the people will not be cleansed of their sin in repentance and in that washing that only God can give and that washing that is offered openly today in the gospel, then God will rid them of their sin whilst their sin is still in them. That's what judgment day is all about when Christ returns. You will be one either... The Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with your sin for you at Calvary and that is your profession 
and that is your testimony and that is your trust and belief and your hope or you'll be one who is still in your sin and God will deal with you in your sin while your sin is still in you. Hmm. And that's the picture of the meat in the pot. Where do you stand before God? Where do you stand before this holy God this evening in your sin? Now, as the chapter moves on, we find the focus moving on to Ezekiel himself. And this most remarkable event takes place as Ezekiel is told that the Lord is going to take his wife from him. The delight of his eyes. Well, it's a wonderful thing that a man's wife can be called the delight of his eyes. On this Mother's Day, I hope, husbands, your wife is the delight of your eyes. Well, Ezekiel's wife was to him. And the Lord's going to take her. In the mystery of his providence. One preacher said this. Ezekiel's prophecy was not delivered from the safety of an armchair. Or from the sanctuary of a pulpit. Ezekiel's ministry is going to cost him dearly. He's going to pay a great price. But none of the things that Ezekiel is suffering are a patch on what the people in Jerusalem are going to suffer. The sword is about to strike Jerusalem. That great boiling and destruction that's pictured in the pot is about to happen to Jerusalem. And that's going to come upon the people. But Ezekiel himself is also going to suffer as the Lord's messenger and servant. I'm going to take away from you the desire of your eyes, the delight of your eyes, which is his wife. God's actually going to take his wife from him. And we read that with one blow, God takes her and he wakes up in the morning a married man and he's going to lie down that night as a widow, widower. And he's expected to go out and preach with this message, with this knowledge of what's going to happen by the end of the day. It's remarkable what God is asking him to do. Can't even begin to imagine what Ezekiel's thoughts might have been, what his emotions might have been, having been given this message by God. You've got that date before you. He gets up in the morning, gets this message. And he's got to preach to these rebellious, stiff-necked people. And the amazing thing is that there is no recorded protest from Ezekiel. Nothing. There's no record of him crying out to God. There's no record of him arguing with God. There's no record of him becoming angry with God. There's no record of him running away from God like Jonah did. Well, of course, you can't run away from God, but he thought he was. 
but Ezekiel didn't try. He doesn't break down in floods of tears, apparently, like Jeremiah did back in Jerusalem. He doesn't seem to be in utter despair like Elijah was. Lord, I can't take any more. Take my life. There's none of that from Ezekiel. Can you imagine coming home in the evening, having delivered this message faithfully as God has asked him to do, knowing that by the end of the day, his wife will be gone? And then God gives him this amazing instruction. No outward show of mourning of any sort. Nothing. No tears. Don't adopt the dress that people would normally dress when they're in mourning. Just dress like normal. Don't go through any of the normal rituals of mourning that people go through. None of that, Ezekiel. Nothing at all. You'll be sighing and weeping, but you do it in your own heart in silence. You won't let the people see. No outward show of mourning whatsoever. Groan, pri groan quietly in private. But outwardly, Ezekiel, you're to behave as though nothing's happened. Well, what's the meaning of this very strange behaviour? that Ezekiel is to adopt when God's going to do this terrible thing. Well, Ezekiel tells them very calmly. You see, he says to the people, the delight of your eyes is about to be taken away from you. That's Jerusalem and the temple. It's about to go. Everything that you love, God's about to remove it all from you. It'll all be buried, it'll all be destroyed, it'll all be desecrated by heathen men. Your sons and daughters will be killed and scattered. And you don't mourn. And Ezekiel tells the people, if you want to be mourning about anything, you should be mourning over your sin. There's more important things to mourn about. Like mourning over your sin. Because sin really is as heinous to God as the Bible says it is. And the judgment that would fall on us really is as awful as the Bible describes it. And every single one of us should be on our faces in the dirt mourning over our sin. And the message of Ezekiel is that if you want to mourn about anything, go and mourn over your sin before God. They did not seek the Lord while he could be found. They did not call upon him while he was near. And God tells him at the end of the chapter that when the city falls, Ezekiel is to remain silent. No more words to be said. And one man will come and confirm to Ezekiel what's happened. And then Ezekiel will be allowed to speak. And so his wife dies. Ezekiel does not mourn. And then he stops speaking. Why does Ezekiel say no more? No more to be said. Too late. 
judgments come. They no longer need a preacher to preach the warning because the judgments come. Now I want to conclude with three things that stand out from this passage and if you haven't taken anything of what I've said so far hang on to these three points that we're going to conclude with and they'll come up on the screen. Number one the stubbornness of those who refuse to hear God's warning. Now I began by talking about how inadequate even the most graphic and shocking language is when trying to explain how awful and grievous our sins are before God. And one of the outcomes of that wickedness that's within all of us is actually, the Bible says, we love being wicked and we prefer the darkness to the light. We don't think of ourselves as being wicked because we always think of wickedness in the classic sense of someone who's committed some terrible, disgusting crime that's going to land us with a life sentence at Her Majesty's pleasure. They're the kinds of sins that are awful. But you see, just to reject Christ, just to reject God's Son, to dismiss his suffering and death as if it is nothing. To shrug your shoulders at the gospel and say, so what? Do you realize what an affront to God that is? When he has done so much to demonstrate his love and his grace in Christ. And you say, who cares? We don't realize what an affront that rejection of Christ is to God. And our sinful hearts have skewed our understanding of what sin is in order that we can justify ourselves and pour some kind of salve on our conscience. Sin really isn't that big issue that the Bible says it is. Sin is just a little bit of naughtiness, that's all. The stubbornness of those who refuse to hear God's warning. Is that you this evening? But you, my friend, still live in a day before the date. You still live in a day before the date. Now this preacher didn't turn up this evening unable to speak because it's too late. Today is still a day of grace and you may still repent but the date is set. It is. So what, what do you wait for? Will you not turn today? Will you not return today before it is too late? as it was in Jerusalem this day, the date that's written down in the Bible, the day it was too late. Are you going to make the same mistake? Here's the second point for you to take home. The judgment that has been foretold is absolutely certain. It's absolutely certain. 
the date is fixed in heaven even if it hasn't been disclosed on earth the days approaching when churches will close their doors for the very last time because before the next Lord's day arrives the Lord himself will arrive the day is approaching and you will have walked out of your last Sunday service and there'll be no more Sunday services because Christ will arrive where will you be? how will you stand? the date is set he's coming the day is coming when you will have heard your last gospel message and the next sound that you hear that speaks of Christ will be the trumpet of God as he appears and every eye sees him. Will you be rejoicing? Or would you be wanting to run away and hide? Because the date has been set and he's coming. And here's one final thing. Those of you who are Christian believers, learn from the life of Ezekiel that we're not our own. And that even in our deepest distress, the Lord is working out his purposes. If only we can truly begin to learn what it means to surrender all to the Lord. What a difference that would make in our lives. One of the Puritans coined the phrase, crosses and losses are to be expected. The Lord gives us crosses to carry and the Lord gives us losses to suffer. But never forget that our Saviour hung on a cross and God never showed him an ounce of mercy but he poured out all of his wrath upon him without any pity for his own son whatsoever the all-consuming fire of God's judgment fell on Christ and those hours of darkness that Christ endured on the cross thousands of years uh, a few hundred years after Ezekiel the darkness that Christ endured at Calvary was far, far greater than the darkness that Ezekiel knew, the, ni the night that the Lord took his wife from him. When Christ died, the delight of the disciples' eyes was taken away. Mary ran weeping into the garden. They've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Such darkness, such anguish, such torment around the events of Calvary. Was it worth it? Oh, it was worth it. Might the Lord cause you to suffer for him? He may. 
May he, may he cause some to suffer a little and others to suffer more? He may. Will it be worth it? It'll be worth it. Christ goes before us. The Lord will not take you through anything that he himself has not already suffered and endured far greater than you will ever. Can God ask too much from his children? He's the Lord. And we are his servants. And if he calls us to suffer for the sake of the gospel, what a glorious example Ezekiel is for us. So be it. It's the Lord. And in all of these things, there's one thing that we should be able to say. And here, in a way, is a test whether you truly are in the Lord, whether you truly do belong to Christ. Whatever it is that the Lord brings into your life, whatever it is that the Lord calls you to walk through, if you can say what Ezekiel declared then you will know that all is well in your own soul. As you walk through all of those sorrows that the Lord may cause you to walk through, if you can say that they might know that he is the Lord and that he is God, then you know that all is well. Whatever the Lord asks of me, whatever the Lord requires of me, if it means that they might know that he is the Lord, well, praise his name.